0: Have you noticed that there are, well, most businesses make money off of our impatience. <laughs> they they kind of bank on the fact that we are impatient and that we can't wait. They say, you want it now, but you can't afford it? No problem. Buy now, pay later. No interest till 2025. Just take it. It's yours. You don't have to worry about it. This offers for a short time only though, so you better buy now and not miss it. Uh, waiting patiently is not something, well, it's something we're getting less and less practice in, right? Because everything is instant gratification in our culture, unless it's at the DMV. Uh, Then we all know how to wait, uh, just not patiently. Um, But waiting patiently was a skill that God's people in the Bible had a lot of practice in, In Old Testament times, God's people went through hundreds of years of suffering and persecution and oppression and injustice. Now, mind you, most of it was their own doing. They got themselves into those circumstances. But what kind of prayers did they pray during those times? They would say prayers like this in Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And it's, it's not that they didn't get impatient sometimes. Every now and again, you read prayers like this in Psalm 13. "O oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? So there, there there's examples of both. We, we see both of these types of prayers uh, in scripture. But generally speaking, people in the Bible seem to have been more practiced than we are in the art of patient waiting. So when when Jesus taught a parable on waiting and looking out and being ready, this was a principle they were pretty familiar with already. And so I want to look at that parable. It's found in Mark 13, uh, verses 32 to 37, as we continue our dive into the parables of Jesus. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself which that's a principle we're not going to get into today. But the fact that God the Father knows the answer and Jesus the Son does not know it, uh, and yet they are one, that's one of those mysteries of Scripture and theology that you can try to wrap your head around probably is never going to happen. In heaven we'll ask and we'll get the answer we want. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Now note, all four of those time slots are at night. They all take place at night. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone watch for him. So, this parable talks about Jesus coming back again. And we need to remember what we talked about in week one of this series, and that is parables have a main point, they have a takeaway. There's something that Jesus is trying to communicate and he wants us to get the big picture of what he's trying to communicate. This is not an allegory where every single person and every single thing represents something different and they all can be perfectly lined up and matched up with something else. Parables have one main takeaway. So don't get caught up in the minutia of, wait, so there's a master of the household, and then there's a gatekeeper, and then there's the servants. Well, what am I? Am I a gatekeeper because I'm keeping watch? Am I a servant because I'm working? Where am I in this? Don't worry about that. We can try and figure out all these things that Jesus really never meant to be anything super specific in our takeaway. He was telling a story that people could relate to. They could all wrap their heads around a master and his servants and the gatekeeper who watched over his his property. They could relate to this circumstance of the master going away and then coming back. Uh, And so this is something with a point he wanted to make. It talks about him coming back to bring his people home to himself. That's the principle that Jesus wanted to teach. The Bible tells us that one day Jesus is coming back and will rapture his church and we will rise to meet him in the air. That's pretty incredible. And there's other passages of scripture that relate to this. And as the old song says, what a day that will be. It's going to be amazing, you know, when Jesus returns. And when we start thinking about a subject like the return of Jesus, something happens First of all, we don't really understand it, right? I mean, we don't get it. We're not given specifics. Uh, And we tend to get really excited about it or agitated about it. And we go off into extremes. There's two extremes that you see in in Christians' reactions when we think about the return of Jesus. And the first extreme is over-enthusiasm. The first extreme is over-enthusiasm. To the point of setting dates, okay? Uh, People have been trying to figure out the date of Jesus' return for as long as it's been since Jesus left the earth and went back to heaven. People have been trying to dial this in and figure it out. In my lifetime alone, and I'm only 48, I remember at least four or five times where someone was convinced they had it figured out and they had written a book or they had preached a sermon and tried to convince as many people as they could that this was the date when Jesus was returned, some of them even down to the minute that Jesus would return on that date. It's not even limited to followers of Jesus who try to do this. You know, Jesus to come again on January 1st, 2000. I remember seeing that headline in tabloids right before we hit the new millennium. So it's not even just Christians who are trying to figure this out. There's all sorts of people who are trying to peg the return of Christ. But that, you know, the National Enquirer is just one in long lines of people who have made these kinds of predictions. In New Testament times, many people thought that Jesus' return would be almost immediate. You know, they they thought that it would be in their lifetime that they would see Jesus come back. In the city of Thessalonica, many Christians had apparently left their jobs and spent their time just waiting for Jesus to come and the Apostle Paul had to jump on their case and send them back to work. He's like, guys, no, this is not how you're supposed to be acting. Get back to work. Throughout history, many people have been confidently identified as the Antichrist. Uh, People were sure that the Roman Emperor Nero, at times the Pope, Napoleon Bonaparte, Adolf Hitler, Henry Kissinger, and Mikhail Gorbachev. These is just a few of the figures throughout history who have been confidently identified as the Antichrist. Each one of them was the man that the Bible was referring to. In the 18th century, the the famous preacher John Wesley uh, said that the depravity of the time in which he lived was so bad that he was sure the return of Christ could only be a few years away at the most. So this is not a new thing. And that was, you know, 250 years ago. People have always looked at the evil things that happen around them and identified them with the evil things that the Bible says will happen before Jesus comes. And and you could ask, what's wrong with looking for the signs of the times? Didn't Jesus tell us the things that would happen before he returned? And there is nothing wrong with it. We need to be students of the signs of the times and what scripture says. We need to be looking. We need to prepare ourselves That's part of the reason Jesus told us these stories and told us what it would be like so that we would know what to look for. But here's where it can get confusing because some of these stories, some of the Bible prophecies that people think are about the return of Jesus aren't about that at all. In fact, even some of the stories that Jesus told and some of the prophetic statements that Jesus made weren't about his return. In in Mark 13, the same chapter that we're looking at right now that talks about his return, many of the details prior to what we read this morning are referring to the time when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., you can see this connection right at the beginning of the chapter. In, in verse 1, Jesus' disciples point out the beautiful temple buildings to Jesus. And he responds by saying this in Mark 13, verse 2. Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And obviously, they were all shocked by this, just like we would be if someone told us that the Capitol building and the Washington Monument would be leveled to the ground by this time tomorrow. So they came back to him. And said, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? They wanted some, you know, prophetic guidance with regard to when this was going to take place. And Jesus goes on then to give the teaching in the rest of the chapter. And most of that teaching is related to the specific question they had asked the time when the Romans destroyed the temple in the city of Jerusalem about 40 years later. For instance, in verse 14, Jesus tells them this, The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. And then in 70 AD, not 40 years later, when the Christians saw the Roman general Titus standing in the Holy of Holies in the temple where he had no business being, they did in fact leave Jerusalem and they ran to the hills just as Jesus had told them. And they escaped with their lives. And the mission of the church didn't end with the fall of Jerusalem because they were aware of the signs. But later on in Mark 13, you know, later on in that chapter, Jesus shifts to talking about his return. And in the places in the New Testament where Jesus' return is prophesied, it is always its unexpectedness that is stressed. The details are always fuzzy we're always kind of kept guessing about when Jesus is going to return. And this flies in the face of those who would want to set a date for when Jesus is coming back. Matthew 24, verse 44 says this, You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. And when the Apostle Paul was telling those Thessalonians, he was telling them off basically for wasting their time standing around waiting for the second coming of Jesus. This is what Paul told them in 1 Thessalonians 5 two. He says, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. So when the New Testament is really talking to us about Jesus' return, its message is very consistent. Be prepared because you never know when it might happen. You just don't know, and you can't know. Let's put it this way. If Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour, you're not going to figure it out, and no one else is either. So if someone tells you that they have it figured out, or they watched this YouTube video, or someone wrote this fascinating blog, or there's this Facebook post that's now been shared over 2,000 times about how two months from now, Jesus is coming back, and here are all the reasons why, Don't put any stock in that, because it contradicts the Bible itself. Now, that being said, the Bible has quite a bit to say about the circumstances of the return of Jesus. There's a lot the Bible has to say about the circumstances, but not the date. It talks about what it will be like. Talks about what kinds of things will be happening in those days. What things need to happen first before he can return. It tells us all of that so we can be prepared. And here's why that is important. There's nothing else in biblical prophecy that has to happen before Jesus can come back. He could come today. He could come tomorrow or 10 years from now or 2,000 years from now. The key is to be ready, because everything scripturally that needs to be fulfilled has already been fulfilled with regard to the return of Christ. It's already happened. The key is to be ready, and that's the primary message of our parable today. Now, more on that in a few minutes. So if the one extreme in the church has been excitement to the point of predicting dates, The opposite extreme from that has been apathy and pessimism, apathy and pessimism, that we're just fooling ourselves, he's never coming again, and and this is not a modern thing, there are people today who feel that way, but even in the New Testament, people had begun to already feel that way, and we're talking, you know, 40, 50 years removed. And after the first initial excitement and expectation had died away, anticipating his soon return, people started to say things like this, that what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. And some people feel the same way today, don't they? You know, we've been waiting for 2,000 years now. I guess it's time to stop deluding ourselves and accept the fact that it's all been a big mistake, Jesus isn't coming back. I mean, there's even some liberal Bible scholars who have rejected the idea of the return of Jesus, and they'll say things like, well, he does kind of return to us when we welcome him into our lives. He's returned in spirit, or when the Holy Spirit comes to us, that's the return of Christ, and they try to explain it away. But that isn't what the Bible says. Jesus is coming back. And we need to be ready for when Jesus returns, and that's what this parable is all about. And even those who do believe that he's coming back, many, many more Christians who believe in the return of Christ, in theory, don't actually let it affect the way that they live their lives. They don't live their lives any differently, even with that knowledge that Jesus is coming. They live their lives and they build their personal empires with no thought for the fact that the day is going to come when it will all end. They're like kids kind of building sandcastles on the beach when the tide is coming in and those sandcastles aren't going to be around that much longer. And here's what I want you to understand. Nothing in this life will last There's nothing in this life that will last. And we need to focus our attention and focus on our energy on things that have eternal significance because that's what's going to matter is those things that we build for the kingdom and not things that we build for our own kingdom. Now, the biblical way to approach the return of Christ is kind of in between these two extremes of date setting and apathy. The correct path for the Christian to follow um, In in anticipating Jesus' return is all about faithful waiting. Faithful waiting is the best biblical way that I can describe how we are to respond to the soon return of Christ. And and really, soon return, soon is such a subjective word. I think a better way of describing that is the imminent return of Christ, that it could happen at any second, the imminent return of Christ. Uh, we continue to wait for Jesus to return. We put our hope in His promises. Uh, we see what is happening around us, but we don't fear persecution or the trials that this world brings. Instead, we let those things draw us closer to Jesus, and we and to grow in us an anticipation for His coming. We live like He's coming back today. But even though we anticipate the the imminent return of Jesus, we don't let that keep us from being busy doing his work. While we're waiting, we're faithful as well. So here's what it means to be faithful. In the parable today, we are told to watch. Mark 13, both verses 33 and 37. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. So the Greek words used in this passage mean things like beware, be alert, be awake, keep watch. This is what scripture is telling us to do. And this is straight from Jesus' mouth. What is it that we're keeping watch for? For the return of the Lord and for his accompanying signs? Yes, we're supposed to keep watch for that. So we know that time is continuing to move forward and the the coming of Jesus is ripening. What's needed to happen is taking place. Yes, he wants us to be aware of that. But also we're to keep watch over the condition of our own lives. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12 and 14. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, Make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in His sight. Now, this really—it's not that complicated. You know, we want to overcomplicate everything, and and this is really a very simple principle that we can apply. It shouldn't be all that tough, really. We're simply supposed to make sure that we're living the way Christians ought to be living as we wait for the Lord to return. It's not saying do anything different. It's saying live like a follower of Jesus. That's what you should be doing. We have, But we have to put some effort into following Jesus. You know, be, living the life of a Christian is not just, okay, Jesus, I, I give my life to you. Come into my life. Forgive me. Thank you so much. And I'm going to check out now and I'll see you when you get back. That's not what it's about. It takes effort on our part to engage in following Jesus and following where he leads and being obedient to the commands of scripture and understanding his will for our lives and for the church and what he wants us to be about. But that's all that we're supposed to do. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's just live like a follower of Jesus. Live pure and holy lives. Love lost people. Worship God and stay close to him. Invest in his kingdom. There's nothing that should catch any one of us off guard because these are not surprising statements. It's what Jesus expects of us, whether he's coming back today or in another thousand years. In today's parable, the opposite of watching is sleeping. In verse 36, don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. And this isn't like hitting snooze and missing the bus for school when you were a kid, you know? Oh man, I just woke up. I was supposed to wake up a half hour ago. Now I'm late. Now I missed the bus and that panic feeling sets in, you know? But here's the thing. There's no having your parents drive you to catch up to Jesus and the rest of the gang. It doesn't work that way. If you're sleeping when Jesus comes back, you're left behind. Yes, just like Kirk Cameron was. The sleeping metaphor is used to warn us against getting careless and lazy about our faith. Those are the sleeping servants. We've let too many things sneak into our lives. They sneak in when we're not paying attention. They sneak in when we're weak and we're vulnerable. Sins that everyone else around us is comfortable with. And so we begin to think to ourselves, it doesn't matter. Everyone else is doing it, so it must be okay for me too. Years ago, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote an incredible book called The Screwtape Letters. And in this book, there's a a senior staff demon who's giving advice to a a junior demon, an up-and-coming demon, about tempting people and how to be effective in tempting mankind. And in one of his letters, Screwtape says this. He says, all that matters is to take his soul off at a tangent Away from God. In other words, don't pull them directly away from God because we'll resist that, but pull them towards the side, pull them away. You don't need a big sin. Adultery is pointless if cards will do it. Indeed, a big sin is less effective because he'll notice it, whereas a small one can creep in unnoticed and gradually take him out of his orbit around God. Now, I'd go further and say that it's the sins of omission that sneak into our lives more persistently and easily than the sins of commission. Commission is doing something you're not supposed to. Sins of omission is not doing something that you should be doing. It's more subtle that way. It's the things we know we're supposed to do that we don't. Caring for the poor and the needy, watching out for opportunities to be a witness to others. These are the things that take us out of our orbit around God without us even noticing it. And this leads to the other thing we're told to do while we wait for the Lord's return, and that is work. Look at our parable one more time in verse 34. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. Now, each one of his servants in the story has been given his work to do by his master. And his job is to do that work until the master returns. And it's the same for us. This is the principle that we can adopt into our lives. We all have our job to do for, Lord, for the Lord. Some of those jobs are universal. They're ubiquitous across the landscape of the church. God has some things he has asked every one of us to do. You know, practice spiritual disciplines. That's not for you personally. That's for all of us. Share your faith. Love your neighbor. These are things that we're all called to universally. But then there are things that he has equipped you and me to do differently. You have your work to do and I have my work to do. The important thing is that we are living out God's word. We're working for Jesus and for his kingdom right up until he comes. I read a fantastic story about a state legislature in way back in colonial New England. And the members of this state legislature were thrown into a panic by a solar eclipse because they didn't know what it was. They just saw the sun going dark. And people were running around and several members of the legislature at that time, they moved to adjourn the session because the second coming of the Lord was at hand. <laughs> they, they knew that this was it. Jesus was coming back. So let's cancel the rest of our time here. But one of the speakers stood up and he addressed the legislature and he said this, Mr. Speaker, if it is not the end of the world and we adjourn, we will appear to be fools. But if it is the end of the world, I should choose to be found doing my duty. I move, sir, that candles be brought in. (laughs) And, And that, I believe, is what a biblical Christian looks like living as we wait for the return of Jesus. Whatever it is, that Jesus is asking you to do, make sure you're busy doing it when he comes back. Whatever it is that Jesus is asking you to do, whether it's the universal will of God for the church as a whole, or whether it's something personal that he has gifted you in or specifically called you to, make sure you're busy doing that when Jesus comes back. So to sum it up, and this is a really easy way to think about it, the way to live as we wait for Jesus to return, can come down to two questions from God. There's two questions from God that we need to ask ourselves uh, or that he is asking us. The first question is this, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, And that's, you know, what are you doing right now? Let's get our lives cleaned up and presentable for Jesus appearing because what we're doing is not found in his will. We're involved in sinful behavior. We've got bad habits in our lives. And God is asking us, what are you doing? because he wants us to live holy and pure and peaceful lives as we wait for his return. But the second question he's asking is this, what are you doing? In other words, you're not doing anything. Get moving. Be about the work that I've called you to do. Stop waiting. Stop being lazy. Start executing the game plan that he's laid out in the pages of scripture. Let's live his mission like never before. Those are God's questions to us. What are you doing and what are you doing? And as we finish up this morning, I want us to ask ourselves some pretty important questions as well. The first question, do I believe that Jesus is coming back? The second question is, am I living like it? It's time to wake up church. It's time to wake up and get to work because it is nighttime and the master is coming back soon. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we are grateful for the promises of your word, that Jesus, you didn't just leave us in the dark trying to figure things out, but you pointed the way for us. And this parable is a phenomenal teaching that you gave that points the way for us and shows us how we are to behave while we wait for your return. God, I pray for those of us who have gotten off track and you're asking the question, what are you doing? Because you're breaking my heart with the decisions you're making in the life that you're living. God, help us to get our act together, to get cleaned up, to repent, to turn away from sinful behaviors, and God, to stay on the, the right path. And God, for those of us that you're asking, what are you doing? Where where is the fruit? Why, Why are you not about the work that I've called you to be about? Lord, I pray that you would help us to more than ever before be about the work that you've called us to do until you return. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be busy about the work you've called us to as a church. And God, let us lock arms together. Let us move forward in unity. Let us Let us see lives transformed. Let us reach the lost. Let us love people who are far from you. God, let us serve those around us. Let us do the work that you've called us to do. And God, let us wait anticipating. Let us watch expectantly for your return. We thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.